Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm joined today by Reverend Kathy Bristow. Reverend Kathy is an ordained interfaith minister and the founder and principal of Bridges, a consulting firm whose mission is to relanguage and initiate fresh conversations about race, gender, and diversity. Her professional career includes senior corporate roles and international assignments, including the director of training and development and chief union negotiator in the wine and petrochemical industries. Reverend Kathy is deeply involved in social justice work and provides free seminars on brain health and the impact of spirituality. She has practiced meditation for several years and is actively involved in her Harlem-based church, First Corinthian Baptist. She also serves on the board of directors for the Community Meditation Center in New York City and on the Council of Advisors for Butterfly Dreams, a nonprofit organization that uses storytelling to teach leadership to young girls who've been thwarted by poverty. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Well, thank you, Sharon. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so happy to hear your voice. Where are you recording from today? I'm in New York in Harlem. And what does it feel like in New York City right now? I was just there uh not for too long. I thought I'd be there for longer in my apartment. And and then uh, the doorman called me and said, oh, they're going to do construction on the apartment above you. And I said, really? And sure enough, they started. And because I had a, a few podcasts to record, I thought, I'm going back to Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, you know, people are talking about um, the recovery in New York City. Yeah. And so my response to that is we will not recover. We're going to change. We will not be the New York we were. We've been traumatized. We've been shaken. And I think we've been humbled um, by a connectivity that we didn't think was possible. And that Mm -hmm. came through a virus. So I look for the new New York because the old one's gone. So yeah. the idea that, you know, commerce is going to come back like it was and we're going to have what we used to know, that's a fantasy. And and I would like for us to start talking about what's the new New York going to be like? Uh, I don't know, uh, but I'm not, not but. And I am looking for um, a transformed place of living and we're in the we're in the rocky stages now, um, but I'm looking for and I'm looking for transformation. Well, someday uh, I would love to have the, an extended conversation with you about that, you know, because I'm so I am a New Yorker, you know, born and bred, mm-hmm. and and uh, I think of um, well, we're almost hitting the 20 year mark for the anniversary of 9 11 as we're recording now. I'm not sure when the podcast will be broadcast, but. Um, it's it's sort of like the reflection on the difference between um or it's like the reflection on what resilience really means does it mean going back you know to where mm. things were or is it 
more in the flavor of post-traumatic growth. Yes, that's what I think it is. And and to see that pain um, can be coupled with and, and fuel opportunity, the frightening part is the unknown. Yeah. However, everything's unknown. Uh, it's just a lot of unknowns. Uh, and I think we'll be, I am certain we will be different. And I'm excited about what I don't know, what might be the new New York. And I, too, love New York City. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's great. So your career spans some unique territory, working in different (laughs) industries and cultures. And uh, I'm wondering how you came to encounter contemplative practice. Has it always been a part of your life? Um, That that is such a good question because, um, yes, my career uh, has some exciting pieces looking back. You know, I'm in the generation that people stayed at one job and I didn't. <laughs> I had sure. I had the wonderful opportunity to move in and out of three major industries and to do well in those. To your question, though, one of my rules was contract negotiations. And I did that, Sharon, in the 70s, in the late 70s, uh, at the tail end of, hold on to this, when Cesar Chavez still had a presence with the grape growers. Mm. in terms of union representation. So it was dicey contract negotiations, and it was um, actually dirty. Um, The the language wasn't good. And my presence as an African-American woman at the table uh, was like a rose in a cornfield. And lots of things were said that were offensive, Mm. um, that were meant to jar me so that I could react instead of respond. And my tool was silence. Mm. I used to, in fact, I got, was charged with an unfair labor practice because I would gaze at whomever was across from me, but use it actually as a focal point, and then just think about my breathing cut off the conversation because it was often too intense and too ugly for me to think in my business head and respond. And I would go silent. There were jokes about it uh, that, you know, she's going to get quiet on you. And I would go inside. (laughs) I would go inside. They would, and it would crescendo, you know, the yelling and the craziness is what it used to be. And I didn't know then What I think I see now is I found a place inside that took me to present moment awareness. I was breathing. I was safe. I was okay. And I didn't have to interact with the external for just a little while. So it's, you know, it's, it's a a different way to think about contemplative practices. However, for me, it was such a practical, way to move and maneuver in something that was really challenging. Uh, and so I used, to, I used to call it, I've even journaled about it, going inside and the, the people would call it, she's going quiet. Yeah. So that was my first experience. It was amazing. Was that just intuition, like to, to go inside, to get quieter? I don't know if it was, it might've been intuition, I think it was also maybe um, an extension of a prayer life. Mm-hmm. Um, prayer life 
if I were praying, there would be some sort of activity in my mind. Mm-hmm. When I went to the stillness, it allowed me not to get distracted with other things so I could go back to what I knew I needed to do to look at costing or terms or language so I could actually feel refreshed. So I think it was the combination of having an ongoing prayer life and then moving to what I call the stillness and using it in the work environment. And I know you've spent time um, developing storytelling rituals for the community of Black women that you mentor at Butterfly Dreams. It's G-R-E-A-M-Z. I'm wondering if you can tell us something about Butterfly Dreams. Oh, thank you, because that's um, that place is special to me. It is um, the vision and dream of a young woman named Joy Lindsay, who I mentored, who I still mentor. And out of a horrific life circumstances of a death, her, her sister being killed in violence, mm. she started Butterfly Dreams. And I think what's really exciting about Butterfly Dreams is that they use storytelling as the foundation. They tell stories, they write stories, and they share stories. And these are young women who may not have seen writing, storytelling, deep listening, any of those as being a way to advance and as a way to understand themselves better as a tool to maneuver through some pretty harsh environment. So storytelling, both verbal and written, is a, is a critical, the critical foundation of Butterfly Dreams. That's fantastic. And, and uh, is it true that you started to work on your doctorate at the New York Theological Seminary as a continuation of an exploration of spiritual resilience and stamina through story? Yes. And when, when you say start, it might be the wrong tense of the verb. I start in September. Okay. Um, you are yes. starting. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm accepted. I'm enrolled. Woohoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. So I'm very so, excited. So your um field, I guess, uh is spiritual resilience and stamina through story. Exactly. What what I um will do, I want to talk affirmatively, is to research and understand um, storytelling as a contemplative practice connected to brain science, because that's already a given research field. What I want to explore sitting on those established facts is to look at the population of women who self-identify as Black who are you who live in the United States. Now, that's a, a large population. However, that's my lived experience. Mm-hmm. And then to use my experience and the experience of the work that I do and my personal uh, questions and interviews with others of how the stories from generation to generation, from peer to peer, allow that population of which I'm a part to sustain ourselves through external Systems that 
don't bode us up, that don't necessarily see us, that don't always include us mm-hmm. often. And the statistics say that's the truth. And I think the storytelling um, has some familiar rings. And I believe that there is spiritual strength that can fuel stamina. Going all the way back to when people were enslaved, mm-hmm. who looked like me, who were able to go through horrific circumstances and still sing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And still have children and still want and believe for a new life. And the stories culturally have been uh, part of my upbringing. And many of the women I've already talked to, our stories are similar. What did your mom tell you? She says, you've got to work harder. You've got to do better. You're not allowed to give up. That's the crypt note version. Mm. So what, what does that mean really? And why do we believe that? And what does it do? And how does it show up in this culture and in this country called the United States? And what have we offered through that, that stamina and that tenacity and that spiritual grit mm-hmm. that is worthy of making record and creating ritual around? So you can see I'm excited about it. It's fantastic. I'm excited about it now too. <laughs> yeah, because it's yeah. also like something I've been exploring, um, you know, for a while in a way is um, it's the stories we tell about who we are, but it's also the stories others tell about us. Yes. That we maybe absorb or um, take in, you know, take on in some way. And it's one of the reasons it seems so imperative to to look at that and be able to separate, you know, just someone's projection onto you with, with your lived reality. Exactly. Exactly. And in addition to storytelling, I think contemplative practices, and this is part of what we talk about in circle is contemplative practices help me to love Kathy more, help us to love ourselves more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I don't, I'm speaking to the choir now, right, about loving kindness. <laughs> um, yeah. And there are all kinds of languages. However, the practice of self-compassion, the, the practice of self-love as a way to heal and provide stamina and strength to then support and help others and to do active change for disrupting systems, I think it's, uh, it's critical. It's as important as physical rest. It's as important as nutritional rest is to get the spiritual stamina, the stillness that I talked about earlier on, and the self-love. And, and in terms of counteracting you know, one of the things that we talk about in Circle is you don't have to refute their stories, just be the story you are. Mm-hmm. Because if I dialogue with you, you are, you aren't, you are, mm, not a good use of time. Their lens may always see me that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the lens that I own or how I see myself and my self-awareness, nor do I have to carry myself as you see me. I think it's really uh, beautiful that you associate love 
so clearly with strength, you know, with grit, with fortitude, because as you know, of course, there's there's so much we hear about love being kind of, you know, sweet and, and ineffective and kind of sentimental and just kind of bring us down. Whereas really, uh, in truth, it's such a phenomenal force. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know that there's a lot of forces greater than. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we look at the stories of what people have and can do because they love, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, so actively seeking self-love as a fuel uh, to deepen our compassion for ourselves uh, and, and healing. And healing, um, I think, is, is such an uh, instrumental part in the stories and the storytelling. So we stop, we start and, and end with, with stillness in our storytelling. Start and end with stillness. Mm-hmm. And one of those things, you know, when you talk about spirituality and people in, in you know, the most horrendous circumstance enslaved could still sing. They still had children. They also um, loved their children and taught children to love. Yes. 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 And, 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 and and if we go back uh, and look at some of the circumstances of those women who had to also care and some of that exists today for mm-hmm. children while their children were not being cared for mm-hmm. and did it in a loving manner. See, I think that's bigger than who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. I think that is a capacity that grows from inside. And um, I marvel. I'm in awe and wonder and so appreciative of those stories because it tells me that if that can happen for them, I can come through this as they went through that. And you can fill in all sorts of details and context for all of those words I just strung together. Storytelling is just remarkably um, powerful, and it also links us together with what was and how others who are physically outside of us, experience and go through life and gives us a new opportunity to be future-facing about, so what's next? I don't know. That, that also lowers my, my rage about race, Sharon, mm-hmm. because the rage will kill me, and I don't want to die from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can lower my temperature and and move it through using contemplative practices and redirect the energy. I don't have to be angry. I can be strong. I can have grit because rage only hurts me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's coupled with the healing, I believe. So let's talk some more about women's leadership, which is also part of your doctorate <laughs> I'm reading. Uh, you spend a lot of time supporting communities of women. I mean, you talked about you're still mentoring um, this lady, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you approach the cultivation of leadership and 
groups that are so often not given access to right. that kind of role. And mm-hmm. I'm really curious about the mentoring role as well. Mm-hmm. One of the approaches that, that, that we take is leadership for it to be effective, for it to be caring, for it to help people to be the best that they can needs to be evolving. The leadership that we look at now in terms of corporations and companies, what we do in the mentoring in Bridges is help women to know the rules because until you get the t-shirt on, you can't get in the game. Mm -hmm. So it's understanding rules that in many cases, Sharon, are not fair. And so it is. Accept that or don't play that game or don't Mm -hmm. get into that arena. And it doesn't mean you're less than. It means if I'm going to be in this corporate circle, there's some requirements for me, a team shirt, so to speak. And then we talk about, you know, you hear the phrase, get a place at the table. Mm -hmm. And I say to the women that I mentor, create a new table that doesn't just include you, but includes everyone, including those who excluded you. Mm -hmm. You make a big old table. So how does that look? How does that look in terms of recognition? How do you brand yourself as a leader so that you can differentiate yourself and yet still be part of the team. So we talk about branding, modeling inclusion vertically and horizontally, inviting yourself in when you're not. Uh, the other thing that we really talk about is making up stories uh, for our own well-being. We get left out of meetings or overlooked. And so if I tell my story about they did this to me, then, then I'm not going to sleep well, mm-hmm. even if, in fact, that might be the intent, which is invisible for me, right? If I say to myself, I was overlooked, which means to me that they really haven't had the opportunity to see the contribution that I'm fully capable of making, hmm, I'm going to see if I can help with that. How do you put yourself back in the game? Oh, you got left out? I'm so sorry I was left out. Is there a way that I can talk to you about what I know? So we practice that in mentoring of Mm. getting yourself back in the game. Uh, If there's someone you're not getting along with, you make the approach and say, I really want us to work better together. How might we begin that? I'm willing to. Because what you want to do is be a leader. So leaders behave in ways that they want to be led which doesn't mm. always mirror the person who's got the title. Mm-hmm. So the mentoring includes if there's a big meeting, uh, sometimes the women will call and will role play before they go in. We often role play before performance assessments so that definitive conversations can happen to ask specific information so that we don't move into things like fit. Oh, really? What does that mean? So uh, what what is it you want? Let's talk about behavior, outcomes, uh, relationships, attitude, so that the women can walk away with some specificity about what is expected and actually teach the other person 
how to do a good performance appraisal. So that's just a little bit of what we do, and I love it. That's fantastic. Um, uh, you're reminding me actually of the Dalai Lama and something he said, um, uh, where I mean, I always say it as though he had like a broad New York accent, but he, of course, doesn't. But um, he said something like, if you obsess about an enemy, you know, if you really uh, get consumed with it, then you can't eat, you can't sleep, mm-hmm. you can't enjoy anything. And he said, don't give them the satisfaction, you know, exactly. which I always thought was like, it's a little bit like living well is the best revenge, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, why sort of ruin your day, your week, your, um, you know, it's bad enough that you're dealing with the obstacle or the comment or whatever it is, but let's find a source of strength so that you can counter it without, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to sleep at night. Yes, and a community and a resource to talk that through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to talk that through. And so that's where the circles happen, our support. That's where the mentoring helps. Uh, a place where we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable, which in itself I think is so organic to development and growth and mm-hmm. is to allow us to be vulnerable and then learn how to carry that into our leadership um, behaviors and in our leadership modeling. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the early stages. It's so funny saying that because I'm not knowing exactly when this podcast will come out. And I just have this image of my publisher thinking, you're still in the early stages? You know, how about the mid stages of writing a book? <laughs> I'm working on a new book. Um, and is part of what I wanted to talk to you about um, as I'm, you know, shaping some of these ideas. And I've been exploring kind of the larger arcs of human experience through the lens of expansion and contraction, how, you know, we get into these contracted states where we're fixated, where we're afraid, mm-hmm. um, we lose perspective, and then we get to expand when we feel connected to a bigger world where we see options, where we feel love. Um, Although love is a funny concept because it can go both ways. You know, it could be that awful obsession and fixation, or it can be the largest force of expansion that we know. Uh, But anyway, you get the picture. So I do. um, I'd love to hear how you approach these arcs in your own life. Like Mm. what happens if you get really afraid, you know, as we do as human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I have uh, a group of mentors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some are women, uh, some are men, some I've had for years. And so my fear, first of all, I accept it's part of the uh, tapestry, you know, it's part of the, framework of my life, fear. Uh, What I also know about fear is that it has nothing to do with where I am right now. It has to do with the story I'm making up that has Mm -hmm. yet to happen. Mm -hmm. So so I can say that to my cognition. I can say that to my head. So then how do I stop my beating heart and not stop it, but slow it down? (laughs) Right, I don't want to stop it. But how, how then do I translate that to that you know that that's when mentoring helps. Um, that's when being vulnerable helps. You know, I had concerns 
about doing this podcast, mm-hmm. fears. And I called one of my mentors and her words to me were, you are prepared and what you don't know, you don't need to know. Mm. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's darn good, right? Yeah. And, and she said, fear can either uh, stump us, you know, or it can propel us and let the, let your fear propel you. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes though, Sharon, when I am contracted, mm-hmm. I need people around me who know me well, mm-hmm. because it may not be evident to me that I have now moved to some small container of living and life and view and interaction mm-hmm. that doesn't serve me well, doesn't serve around people around me, or nor does it use my capacity and capability, you know, and I can get in that little, that little ridge. Mm-hmm. And so mentors and people who love me and people who know me help me to do that, to, to see, Kathy, you're playing small. Or to be completely honest with me so that I then can allow myself to be vulnerable and say, okay, okay, this is what's happening. And I think it does happen in ways that we don't realize that we've slipped into this narrow passage that uh, prevents us mm-hmm. from transforming and really limits our resilience, our growth, our vulnerability gets smashed down seeking this illusion of safety. Mm-hmm. And I've had both. You know, I've had expansive, expansive experiences where I have felt inside that I could do whatever it was that was put in front of me. Now, that, of course, isn't realistic. However, the energy that says, don't stop, don't quit, move into the unknown. It's okay to mess up. It is not okay to give it a try. It is not acceptable to step into where you haven't been. That's one of the excitement things about life mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Yeah. To get into the question. How do you counsel people? You know, we live in a time where there's so much loneliness. I mean, even aside from, you know, pandemic craziness, you know, and being cut off, but um, even before, you know, like it was so beautiful. What you described is that circle and the mentorship. And I thought, how much warmer than like Googling an inspiring poem, you know, which we mm-hmm. might have to do, which would also serve in some circumstances. But, you know, do you just say to people like step by step or, you know, don't don't hesitate to do a small thing to make a human connection? Or I think if it's... You mean just just in terms of counseling people and talking well, to people? Yeah, like finding a mentor or finding oh. a group or finding a even a you know a couple of people who mm-hmm. form a sense mm-hmm. of community for you, even if it's on Zoom these days or whatever. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I encourage people to start where they are. So uh, I live in an apartment building, and we've started where I check on my neighbors. Now, that's not a circle. However, they mm-hmm. check on me and I check on them. Mm-hmm. So maybe use opportunities that may not be 
uh, traditional or conventional, start stepping out because that then gives me the courage then to approach someone else, maybe in an organization, uh, perhaps on some sort of social media and start with one or two and start to share your stories. You know, I'm talking to a woman who were very differently situated and we met through an interesting set of circumstances. And so now we talk periodically and we share our stories. Mm-hmm. What What's important about that was I asked her, can we continue to talk? I went to a seminar and she was there. I said, can we just talk some more? And we did. So I think it's taking risk. Mm-hmm. It's doing what might not feel conventional or comfortable to reach out, take a little discomfort, and try reaching out for one person at a time. And if you want a circle, decide what and how you can connect with other people. And if nothing else, you tell your story of why you want the circle. Mm-hmm. I really want to talk about How do you get through this? Because that's the common platform that most of us are experiencing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is the trauma that is happening from all the external pressures and changes, some of which we like, some of which we don't, all of which are happening at a speed that none of us thought we'd have to live through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I encourage people to just do something, try something different. Um, The young woman who is on the corner who helps direct traffic in my neighborhood. Uh, I stopped and talked to her and she said to me, you know, I really sometimes want someone to talk to. And I said to her, how can I help you? Mm. And she said, I'm not sure. So one of the women I mentor doesn't have a lot of people to talk to. So I'm connecting the two of them Mm -hmm. to talk. Just, I think we, You know, when you ask about New York, that it's going to be different. I think creating community and connectivity to each other, we we might need to step out of our comfort zone and do things a little differently Mm -hmm. with perhaps people we have not in the past considered connecting and being vulnerable with. That's a beautiful message. And I, I just wanted to ask you, since you are an interfaith minister, what drew you to that path? And what's it like um, sort of working in multiple traditions? <laughs> I think what, 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 what drew me to the path, Sharon, is uh, the questions. Uh, I've always believed that there's something. And you know, this is where words are going to fail me because I don't have words to describe something that's infinite uh, and I can't touch it or see it or smell it. However, there's something that makes flowers bloom and look different. And so we can talk about plants and bulbs. However, I do believe that there, there is some essence that is different. So my questions always have been, I didn't get, I wasn't raised in a church. There are people in my family who, uh, who are Presbyterian ministers and all sorts of things. Um, and I've always asked why, where, how, really? I don't believe that. And part of what my interfaith 
participation does is encourages me to see the oneness of spirituality outside of the rituals, mm-hmm. the requirements, the rules, the venues, the celebrations, the costumes. You know, I've got a good friend who's a Sufi, and so she's taking me to do the process worship worship where you whirl. And so then in my Baptist church, I've seen people dance. We're just so much more alike than we are different in terms, I believe, of our search for a connectivity to spirit, which I believe starts inside. So my, my draw or my attraction to multi-faith is that it's, it's sort of like um, a collage of what a divine is. And I think that's ever so beautiful, moving and moving around and changing and however encircled in sort of the same container of the search, the question, the quest, the need. Uh, so I've got deep faith. And um, a friend of mine is a nun, and she talks about having her pivotal foot in Christianity, and then she used it sort of like a basketball player is doing a hoop shot, just circle <laughs> around, circle around. And, and maybe that's me. I don't know. Um, but I find it deepens my faith, and it deepens my questions and my curiosity and my trust, my trust in that there is a spirit. And I use that word because I don't have another Mm-hmm. that exist. And so interfaith just gives me, uh, wow, all sorts of exciting ways to keep keep searching, keep questioning, keep being curious. And they are very, very happy not to know. Wow. Um, I also want to talk about uh, this extremely inspiring thing that you did. Um, you know, in this period, this intense period of the global pandemic and um, you coordinated an appreciation ceremony and a parade for essential hospital workers at Harlem Hospital. Yeah. You, also, you also launched a 24-hour free service staffed with all volunteer chaplains, therapists, and healers. With yeah. Contemplative practices of deep listening, prayer, meditation, and breathing exercise. You've really met the suffering of this time with such love and I think about those people all the time because it's only getting worse, you know? And, yeah, 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 um, yeah. You know, it's one thing to get through something for like a month and a half, and it's another thing when it's like 18 months, 19 months, 20 yeah. months. So I wonder if you can share more about that that effort. Sure, sure. Um, you know, like many people, uh, the pandemic for a while um, – when you talk about constricted, I got mm-hmm. constricted. You know, what can I do? I can't do anything. I'm here in the house. I've got to wear my mask. I can't. I had a, I had a lot of can'ts, a lot of prohibitions, a lot of don't do that. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. What can I do? I can do something. So here's that expansion, Sharon. What can I do that, mm-hmm. that I can still care for myself and be of service? And so... Here for you now, H-E-A-R, you know, using a play on words, it, it came, actually came after I did a meditation, was the idea that, um, that we, um, 
myself and others I got to help could offer this 24-hour service. So the way it worked is I rented uh, an 800 line and individuals um, agreed to volunteer for hours during the 24-hour day to be available for five minutes only to people who would call. And I had people across the country so we could cover the clock in terms of time. Mm -hmm. And the way it worked is we would gather, we being the volunteers, and share contemplative practices, rituals. And then we had some standard things because we didn't know who we were talking to. We were to do prayers of the universe if we were asked to pray or to ask the person we were talking to would you like to pray? I will pray with you in your tradition. We offered a listening. Can I listen to you now? We have five minutes on the phone. Would you like to talk to me about what you're feeling? And then do deep listening. We had guided meditations that we learned that we all use the same meditation. Um, and then we had a few people who would sing. Mm. So the volunteers would meet. We would do, I'll call it training, because people were coming under different kinds of traditions. And we would have the same requirements for the calls. And those were, when you answer the phone, you say, I'm here for you now. We have five minutes on the phone, and we can do one of these things. I can listen to whatever it is you want to tell me. We can pray. We can meditate or we can be silent and just do breathing exercises here together and breathe. And then just before the time is over, it's to say the person, we're almost at the end. How would you like to close out? And the reason we did that fixed time, Sharon, was the hospitals agreed to allow the 800 number to be posted and used and not to be part of a break time, or you've got to ask your supervisor time. You could go access here for you now, just like any time that you would walk away from your workstation or go to the bathroom. And wow. the people who, yeah. isn't that sweet? The people who volunteered, that, that was that expansion. I would say to people, do you know someone who wants to help? And so we got volunteers from the most unusual places. We got chaplains from uh, Columbia University, we got ministers who didn't have places to go ministers. We got people from the mosque who were willing and open to listen. And so it was, um, it was a very rich, rich experience. It's interesting that we're talking about this because I ran it for a year and I just talked to the woman who did the back in technology to link people's personal phones to the 800 number so the phone would ring in your home. And mm -hmm. I said, we may need to start it again because I think we're back into the deep stressors and trauma for the mm -hmm. medical community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, it would be a beautiful thing to start it again. Yeah. Uh, really, the community is sacrificing a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. They really are. And to have someone to listen to for a short time who doesn't want to know your name or your title, mm -hmm. 
is just there to listen and to be available to you for a short amount of time um, that you can call anywhere. Five minutes you can take in the hallway or the bathroom. So it was a privilege for all of us who, who listened on those phones to hear people and to stand with them and to represent love, Sharon, in a way that just says, I'm present. I am your human connection for this short time who cares that you are caring for all of us. What a powerful statement to say to another human being. Oh, it's so beautiful. And it's like, maybe that's at the core of resilience, you know, it's like mm. not feeling so alone. I'm just the yeah. thought of calling somebody and having them sing to me for five minutes is really beautiful. Yeah, there's a couple people who said, can we sing? And I said, if you want to offer it, I'm not. Um, and so uh, one of the men had a gorgeous voice. And yeah. And we actually had him on some of the lines. If we had a line that was an hour that wasn't covered, we would have a little short uh, meditation. Then he would sing out until we got someone to cover the hour so that any time in 24 when you picked it up, someone answered here for you now and said, I'm here to be with you. Yeah. Mm. It was very, very exciting for me to be able to, using your words, expand. Expand. Yeah. So great. So another theme, of course, that's emerged from the pandemic um, is the further revelation of the immense inequities that exist in the society. And, uh, and with that, perhaps a different level of accountability and responsibility toward dismantling systems that promote those inequities and like racism. And I'm wondering how that is being reflected at Bridges, your consulting firm. Mm, mm. Um. Bridges uh, has started to have less conversations about diversity and inclusion. And um, why well, I, I don't want to say disparaging things. What I want to relanguage the work that we're doing. So I'll do mm -hmm. that. So the work that we're doing now is using methodology to dialogue into the discord. Mm -hmm. So what happens most often, Sharon, I think is that people get to the point of tension and owning, I didn't do this, I didn't mean to do that. Whatever that is in terms of the subject matter of those tensions, whatever the tensions are about our difference, be it race or gender, gender ID or... When we get to that point of discord, I see it this way and you see it that way. When in fact, how it's seen, we may not share that. Mm -hmm. So the work that Bridges is doing is inviting people to get into that tension, not for resolution and homogeneity, to learn to see each other as W-H-O-L-E, and myself as W-H-O-L-E, and allow that to be. Allow that to be. So that's really the work that Bridges is doing, is uh, we're doing that, and we're also very much using contemplative practices as a way to accompany the tensions. 
uh, of racial discord and of um, the systems that we must all be responsible for disrupting. Uh, one of the um, methodologies I've just learned comes way from the 80s with a consultant named Stir Fry who did some really controversial things. However, I think what he did well, Le Mounia is his word, is his name, um, was that he allowed people to be vulnerable even when it wasn't necessarily comfortable for everyone in the room. Mm. You know, we, we hear this word about safe space, and I don't use that because safety is in our minds. I use the term vulnerable growth because we have harmed each other. We have caused great harm. Mm -hmm. If we don't that connect that to our intentionality, we might be able to get through this together. If we're willing to forgive ourselves, which is such a powerful, it's almost as powerful as love, right? Mm -hmm. It might be an element of love. To forgive ourselves and heal ourselves then we might be able to connect with others through that forgiveness and that healing. And I think we're kind of scared to talk to the other. Uh, the people who were on the street um, after George Floyd died, mm -hmm. I didn't protest, some because of my age and because I didn't want to be out there anymore. What I did do was go talk to the police and who came to my neighborhood in Harlem, and I would show them my card that said, Reverend. So that kind of took the temperature down. And then I've got gray hair, temperature down. <laughs> and I would say to them, thank you for being here. I think that you probably have a family and people who love you, and I want you to tell me what I can do to help you get home safe and you can help me to help them get home safe, pointing to the youngsters. What can we do? What can we do so that you guys get home safe and they get, what do you want of me as an elder? Most of them had no idea. I wasn't sure what I was offering. Mm -hmm. However, it's that expansion again. It's to approach what might appear to be the unapproachable. It's to allow vulnerability in places where it may not be fashionable or it may not be what the thing to do in social justice work. Just walk up to someone that you haven't before and say, how can I help you? How can we make this better? So one police person at a time, I'd walk down and uh, never got pushed away, um, never got rejected. So I guess that's a snippet of what Bridges is doing mm -hmm. is I don't want to talk about systems outcome. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got this many of these, and, and I'm not, I don't want to do that. That's outcome. I want to talk about human input. Mm -hmm. And that's where we can all start to do something. We can all pull back some of the armor that has prevented us from being vulnerable block the roads and the capacity for forgiveness and not access that inner stillness, Sharon, because there's some love in there. There's some love in there. 
So we've changed at Bridges. I'm grateful to grow. You know, I've been at this work for a long time. And I'm, I'm grateful to say that what I was doing in the 60s, I'm not doing in 2021. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> and who knows what I'll be doing in 2022 or tomorrow, right? So yeah, I'm grateful to evolve, yeah, and grow and, um, and, and, sh- and broaden my lens and try to get the, take the opportunity for people to expand me. Uh, allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people I don't know. That's beautiful. You are an incredible model, and thank you for your inspiration and your service. And really, truly, and I'm wondering if uh, to close our conversation, if you could lead us in some kind of guided practice or reflection. I would love to do that. And um, this is I'm leading Sharon Salzberg in a guided practice. <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah. That's true. (laughs) That's really showing oneness, right? Yes, 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 yes. So, yes, and so I do. Um, And so I offer this for us to start, and that is where we are today is we're holding grief. We all are. Grief of what we thought we knew. Grief of what we thought was predictable. Grief of what we've lost grief of what we are losing, grief of what can't be, grief of traditions, rituals. And then in the other hand, we hold gratitude. Gratitude. So in these few minutes, if we can allow ourselves to think about this day, whenever you're listening to this broadcast some something that's happened that's good not a big deal good maybe a meal perhaps someone smiled on the subway maybe someone let you get in line first maybe you saw a baby playing something good Go through your day. Go through the time that's passed. The day, couple hours. What happened that's good? When you find those, connect the feeling that happened. For just a moment, That good-tasting meal might have made you smile. The flower growing where you didn't think it would grow might have given you an instant of wonder and awe. That baby laughing might have reminded you that life is continuing as it should in ways we don't know. In that laughter... Allow yourself to connect those feelings and bring back those feelings of the good things. It's called gratitude. Gratitude. 
And if it works for you, say thank you. Thank you, little miracles. Thank you, little good things. Thank you, little moments of smiling, little instances of joy, Mm. little times of happiness. Say thank you. And then take those experiences of gratitude and allow yourself to breathe them in, the gratefulness, the gratitude. Know that as we practice looking for the good moments, looking for what to be grateful for, becomes a habit. We see what we're looking for. We shift our mood. We're more in our lives at that moment We're living large. So as you hold to these feelings and remember these feelings, I'm going to invite you to use this little process of remembering the good things. Connecting the feelings that go with them. Knowing that that's our gratitude that we hold in our hands. To influence and inform your day, your moment, your awareness. Thank you for walking through gratitude with me in this gratitude practice. Ashe. Well, thank you so much for holding out your hand and walking with us all and accompanying so many on on this journey. Thank you to everyone who's listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sharon. Oh, thank you. It's really a, such a huge delight to, yeah. to speak to you. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>